praise and honor and thanks for who you are. And we just pray that you hide your messenger as your word goes forth today, that your spirit leads and guides and directs us. We pray in Christ's name. As we are standing today, we go before the very inerrant holy word of God. That's why we stand in reverence of it. Today's passage reading is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. So let's go to the very word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And in Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And while one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. I just want to thank this session for giving me the opportunity to bring forth God's word. And I know that we read two really familiar passages today, but I just hope that we don't get lost in the familiar, but stay focused on what, may God, may, what God may reveal to us today in his word. So I just want to thank you for that. I don't know about all you, but I love watching funny videos. I can sit and watch them for hours and just laugh. And I'm sure all of us have seen the videos of the little kid with their face and hands covered with chocolate and the parents asking them, did you eat the chocolate? And what is the response of the little kid? No, I didn't eat any chocolate. Even though the evidence is dripping off of them from everywhere. And the parents go, are you sure you didn't eat any chocolate? Oh no, I didn't eat any chocolate. And the videos are very funny and we can laugh at them, right? But my heart really goes out to the parents. I think how many hours and days and even weeks the parents had to work with their kids to teach them how to lie so well or train them on how not to share their toys or how to be so self-centered. But wait a minute, we don't have to teach our kids all these things, do we? It's almost like they were born that way. There was something inherent in them, right? We can look at a little 10 pound baby and think, oh, how cute. But if we don't feed them or change them when they're wet, what happens? They turn into this little rage machine. Beat red from head to toe, every muscle in their tiny little body straining and tense, screaming and crying. And we can joke, oh, they're just exercising their lungs, right? How many times have we heard that? But could you imagine 
If there was a 350-pound defensive lineman sitting in here today and that type of rage came over him, would we be saying, oh, how cute, he's just exercising his lungs? No, we'd be jumping over chairs to get out the door, right? Because none of us would be safe. So what are we talking about here? Why at the earliest times in our lives does these types of behaviors come out of us? When we are a baby, we go into these rages. When we are old enough to talk, we tell lies. It's not in us to share. We see little kids have total meltdowns in stores because they didn't get that piece of candy or that toy that they wanted. And as adults, we might not lay down on the ground in public kicking and screaming when things don't go our way. But if we're honest with ourselves deep down, these emotions can still get the best of us. So what are we talking about here? It is the doctrine of total depravity. So often when we start talking about the Reformed faith, what subject is almost always automatically brought up? It's predestination or election, right? But if this concept of total depravity of man isn't understood, then the rest of Reformed theology just does not line up and we cannot make sense of it. R.C. Sproul has said before, he has said before that you cannot understand or get the Reformed faith without having a biblical understanding of what total depravity is. So let's take a little time, first of all, to see what it isn't. And then we'll take a look at what it actually is. So many people, when we hear this concept, the first thing that comes to mind is utter depravity. But that's not what we're talking about. We can all name some people in history that we can all agree on were pretty evil people. Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, Joseph Stalin, maybe even Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. Can we all agree that these people weren't the nicest people in the world? I don't think any of us would have wanted them as our neighbors, right? But here's the thing. None of these people were utterly depraved. No matter what they did, in all reality, they could have been worse. No matter how history looks upon these people, no matter what disdain we have for them, in all reality, they could have been a whole lot worse than what they were. In the most part, they had people in their lives that they loved and cared for. So the term utter depravity means that someone is as bad as they possibly could be all the time, never doing anything other than evil. So in reality, no one has ever been utterly depraved. So then the question lies in, what is total depravity talking about? What the term means is that there isn't any part of our existence that is not polluted by sin. Our thoughts, our emotions, our wills, our motives, everything and every part of us is contaminated by sin. It affects everything we do. Martin Luther once said, we need to repent of our repentance. He was saying, even when we repent, we need the grace and mercy of God because we can't even get repentance right without it. If we do it on our own, it's wrong. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately, I'm sorry, the heart is more deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Did we get that? The heart is more deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And of course, we have Romans 3.23, For all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul sums this up in Romans 5.12 when starting out and saying, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul, did you notice that? Paul equates sin with death. Sin is a corrupting agent that defiles and destroys. How do we know that everyone sins? It's pretty easy, right? We all die. If we had no sins, our body wouldn't get old and start falling apart. An uncorrupted body lives forever. We don't have an uncorrupted body, do we? I don't know about you, but I feel this corruption in my body more and more each day. I hurt in places I never knew I had before. (laughs) So let me ask you this. Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we are sinners? That's a little tricky, so let me repeat that. Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we are sinners? I always like to give this analogy to help explain this. Say you had a a little lamb and you had a lion. You put the lamb in one pen and you feed it hay and oats and barleys and all the little, all the things that little love lambs love to eat. And what happens? The lamb flourishes, right? We take a lion though, we put it in another pen and we feed it the same thing. What happens to the lion? He starves to death, right? Why? Because the lamb and the lion have two different types of nature. We are born with a sin nature. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, because sin entered into the world through Adam, we are all cursed with this sin nature. We were conceived in sin, and like we talked about earlier, this is evident from our birth. This should put an end to the old question, is it nature or nurture? And obviously it's so important to nurture our little ones. But we have to remember that our little ones were born into a sin nature. I like seeing those videos of people out on the street asking different people different questions and everything and and I love when they go up to them and people say I believe people are basically good I mean I'm sure we've all seen those right let me ask you this though how many of you have lied I know I've lied (laughs) what about how many of you have stolen something I've taken stuff that did not belong to me in the past What about committing adultery or even murder? Most of us would say, well, maybe I told a little white lie before, and maybe when I was a kid I took something that didn't belong to me, but 
adultery and murder? Never. But let me remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 5.28 when he said, But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in his heart. And ladies, just because this was written in the masculine doesn't let you off the hook. The same applies to you if you've looked upon a man in the same way. So we're all in the same boat here. So you might say, well, at least I haven't committed murder. In that same passage, when Jesus is talking about murder, he says, but I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother shall be committed, shall be guilty before the courts. So what is it we call someone that tells a lie? We call them a liar, right? What about someone who steals, a thief? What about someone who commits adultery? We call them an adulterer. And someone that commits murder, they're a murderer. So we are all lying, thieving, adulterous murderers. Wow, that's quite an impressive resume, isn't it? I know if we were looking for, to fill a position and somebody came in with a resume that said, I'm a lying, thieving, adulterous murderer, we'd hire him on the spot, wouldn't we? That's the guy we want for the job. Put him in that position. But, you know, in all reality, we all fall into this boat. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we break this passage down a little, what is it saying? First, Paul uses the word you. Was he talking to an individual or was he using this as a plural term? And obviously he was talking to everyone who was reading this, right? Then on down he says, whom we all once walked. That seems pretty inclusive, doesn't it? And then at the end he says, the rest of mankind. So Paul leaves no one out. Last I checked, all of mankind kind of covers everyone, doesn't it? R.C. Sproul likes to use the term radical depravity instead of total depravity because the root word for radical basically means root or core. Sin doesn't just affect us in the peripheral, but down to our very core or essence, our very being. I know we've taken quite a bit of time to talk about this, but I think it's very important to understand exactly what we're talking about when we refer to the doctrine of total depravity. So we have this fallen nature, don't we? <clears throat> and in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. <clears throat> and then in Isaiah 64, 6, it says, All of our righteous deeds are polluted garments. So it is not only that we aren't saved by our works, 
the so-called righteous deeds that we think we do are a stench to our Lord and Savior. So exactly where does that leave us in our fallen state? Are we not like Isaiah, whom when confronted by God's holiness and glory, calls a curse upon himself and says that he is lost or undone or ruined or reduced to silence? That's a phrase that was used back in those times, talking about someone that's dead, reduced to silence. Because what's the old saying? Dead man tells no tales. So he calls this curse upon himself. And when Isaiah was confronted by the holiness of God, he was so overwhelmed, he didn't know what to do. And so what does he do? He cries out, woe is me. But why such a strong reaction by Isaiah? After all, he's God's man, right? He is the prophet of God. God had spoken to him before. Why at this time was he so completely overwhelmed that the only thing he could do was call a curse upon himself? It was the overwhelming realization of the holiness of God and the complete and utter despair of seeing himself as he truly was. Lost and without hope, knowing his total unworthiness before the perfection and holiness of God. It is said we can't really see ourselves as we are without first getting a glimpse of who God truly is. The Apostle Paul in his early writings talked about being the least of the apostles. Then later on he wrote that he was the least of all saints. And then in 1 Timothy, as we read earlier, which is one of the last books that he wrote, he said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost So this Paul who gave up everything, his high position with the Jews, his status among the people, his freedom and eventually his life, talks in his early writings about being the least of the apostles, then later on being the least of the saints, to finally, in one of his last epistles, he says he is the foremost sinner on earth. Was Paul's life spinning so out of control that he was spying in such a downward path that he could not, that he continued to get worse and worse? Or was it truly that the deeper he got to know God, the more the Lord poured into his life and the realization of the total otherness of God overtook him to see himself as he truly was, lost and without hope, barring the grace and mercy of a loving heavenly father? It is quite obvious it's the latter by examining Paul's life. We talked about different people in history earlier, Hitler and Manson and the like. And we compare ourselves to these people and we come to the conclusion, well, I'm not as bad as they are, right? But I heard this illustration the other day, and like most illustrations, it does fall short. But I think it really brings the point home. If we took all the greatest athletes that have ever lived And we can all come up with a big list of different people we think should be on that list, right? But if we took them all and lined them up along the Grand Canyon, and I lined up with them, you know, being the great athlete that I am, and you tell us you can take as much of a running start as you wanted and try and jump across the canyon. We all take off running, running faster and faster as we can as we get to the edge, and we leap into the canyon. Some would leap a lot further than others, right? 
Myself, I'd probably trip at the edge and tumble into the canyon. The thing is, even if some jumped 5, 10, or even 20 foot further than the rest, what is the final outcome? We would fall woefully short of, and what is the result? We would all end up in the same place, at the bottom of the canyon. And that is the point. No matter how morally of an upright life we lead, it still falls woefully short of the mark set by God. And what is that mark? It is perfection. What is the final result of the illustration we use? We all end up at the bottom of the canyon mangled and dead, which is the same spiritual result that happens when we think that there is something in ourselves that can obtain acceptance from a holy God. This is one of the major reasons that we should not look upon man to try to justify ourselves. Because let's face it, as I said earlier, we can always find someone that we're a little bit better than. But here's the problem. God does not judge on a curve. He has a set standard that will never change, and that standard is complete and utter perfection. We so often hear people say the reason they don't go to church is because it's full of hypocrites, right? This breaks my heart because one of two things are happening or a combination of the two. We as believers are not expressing what true Christianity is or the people are just using it as an excuse. We as believers might need to do a better job of explaining exactly what we believe. To be a true believer, we need to confess our total unworthiness before a holy God. That it is nothing in us that can make us right before God. That what we really deserve is condemnation, separated, separation from God for eternity. That we are vile sinners in the face of a wrathful God. It is only through the grace and mercy of a loving Heavenly Father that we have any hope at all. Remember the standard. The very lowest degree that is required is perfection. So if we are looking at others, our gaze is in the wrong direction. Again, being confronted by the holiness, glory, and perfection of God for those who believe as woe as me, leaving us clinging to Christ and Christ alone, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Again, the old hymn writer wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. That is our only hope, not relying on anything that we can bring, but wholly trusting in Jesus' name. Let's take just a few minutes talking about the holiness of God. You know, today when we write, when we really want to get a point across, we use an exclamation point, right? And when we really want to get a point across, we overuse exclamation marks, you know. It wasn't so back in ancient times. <clears throat> what they would do, if they wanted to get a point across, they would repeat themselves. Like when Christ said, truly, truly, he was saying, play close attention. I'm about to tell you something that is really, that you really need to hear. Like everything he says isn't something that we really need to hear. But he is saying, when he's saying, truly, truly, he was saying, if by chance 
you weren't paying attention before, you would really better pay attention to this. This is extremely important. Do you realize that there's only one attribute of God that is raised to the third degree of repetition in all of Scripture, and that is the holiness of God? And it is found twice, once here in Isaiah and the other time in Revelation. Do you know what both of these Scriptures have in common? They are both visions of God sitting on his throne in heaven, where his full glory and holiness is revealed. Only one characteristic of Almighty God is communicated, as one theologian put it, to the superlative degree from the mouth of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says he is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence. And when it is manifested to Isaiah, the sounds of the voice of the seraphims, the doorposts and thresholds of the temple shook, inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. How can we in his image be indifferent or apathetic to his majesty? God alone is holy. In Deuteronomy, it tells us, and there was not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, not like him for the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Also in Numbers, we have the Lord saying this of Moses, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I the, Lord make himself, I, the Lord make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all, the, all my house. When I, with him I speak mouth to mouth, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Let me ask you this. What sin did Moses commit that caused him not to be allowed into the promised land? It was striking the rock twice, right? We can think, boy, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. The Lord told him to strike it once to bring forth water, and he struck it twice. So the Lord didn't allow him into the promised land because of this, right? But that was only the manifestation of the underlying sin that was so grievous to our Lord that the prophet he spoke face to face with was not allowed to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 32, 48 through 51 tells us that that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up to this mountain of Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho and view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for a possession and die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as your brother, as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the, of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. So what then did God say Moses' sin was? 
it was that he did not treat him as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. So if Moses, the only prophet that the Lord spoke face to face with, falls short of the standard, what possible hope do we have if we are looking at ourselves or others? We have none. So why does God hold his own holiness to such a high degree that he does not let his servant Moses cross the Jordan? If we take a look at exactly what it is meant by God's holiness, I think we can get a better glimpse of why he does. Charles Hodge said this about the holiness of God. The holiness of God is not to be conceived as one of God's attributes of one of God's attributes among many. Did you get that? The holiness of God is not to be conceived as one of God's attributes among many. It is rather a general term representing the concept of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. In other words, it's the total summation of who God is. That is why he holds his glory at such high esteem. So what exactly does that mean to us? How should this affect our Christian walk? In the light of learning all this, are we to tremble at the thought of God's glory? And as Isaiah did, pronounce a curse on ourselves? If we are in Christ, we know we have acceptance before a holy God, not based on anything in and of ourselves, but on the basis of the work that Christ has already done for us. It is finished, he said. But still, as we look at Paul's life, how he constantly downgraded his status, we ourselves, when we see glimpses of God's glory, should impact us deeper, and it should have a lasting effect on our lives driving us to serve him nor, not out of fear, but out of the realization of how much he loves us, how he did not spare his only son to save us, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Let's go to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that, that you have made this wretch your treasure, Lord. I just pray that as we go forth, Lord, that we can go forth in your name, Lord, that we can share your glory and holiness to those around us. And we just want to continue to give you all praise in Christ's name. Amen.